0: Chapter Seventeen of the Little White Bird. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra. The Little White Bird by J. M. Barry. Chapter Seventeen. Chapter Seventeen The Little House. Everybody has heard of the little house in the Kensington Gardens, which is the only house in the whole world that the fairies have built for humans. But no one has really seen it, except just three or four. And they have not only seen it, but slept in it. And unless you sleep in it, you never see it. This is because it is not there when you lie down, but it is there when you wake up and step outside. In a kind of way, everyone may see it, But what you see is not really it, but only the light in the windows. You see the light after lockout time. David, for instance, saw it quite distinctly far away among the trees as we were going home from the pantomime. And Oliver Bailey saw it the night he stayed so late at the temple, which is the name of his father's office. Angela Clare, who loves to have a tooth extracted because then she is treated to tea in a shop, saw more than one light. She saw hundreds of them altogether, and this must have been the fairies building the house, for they build it every night and always in a different part of the gardens. She thought one of the lights was bigger than the others, though she was not quite sure, for they jumped about so, and it might have been another one that was bigger. But if it was the same one, it was Peter Pan's light. Heaps of children have seen the light, so that is nothing, but Mamie Mannering was the famous one for whom the house was first built. Mamie was always rather a strange girl, and it was at night that she was strange. She was four years of age, and in the daytime she was the ordinary kind. She was pleased when her brother Tony, who was a magnificent fellow of six, took notice of her and she looked up to him in the right way, and tried in vain to imitate him, and was flattered rather than annoyed when he shoved her about. Also, when she was batting, she would pause, though the ball was in the air, to point out to you that she was wearing new shoes. She was quite the ordinary kind in the daytime. But as the shades of night fell... Tony, the swaggerer, lost his contempt for Mamie and eyed her fearfully and no wonder, for with dark there came into her face, a look that I can describe only as a leery look. It was also a serene look that contrasted grandly with Tony's uneasy glances. Then he would make her presents of his favourite toys, which he always took away from her next morning, and she accepted them with a disturbing smile. The reason he was now become so wheedling and she so mysterious was, in brief, that they knew they were about to be sent to bed. It was then that Mamie was terrible. Tony entreated her not to do it tonight, and the mother and their coloured nurse threatened her, but Mamie merely smiled her agitating smile. And by and by, when they were alone with their nightlight, she would start up in bed crying, Shh! What was that? Tony beseeches her. It was nothing. Don't, Mamie, don't. And pulls the sheet over his head. It is coming nearer, she cries. Oh, look at it, Tony. It is feeling your bed with its horns. It is boring for you. Oh, Tony, oh! She desists not, until he rushes downstairs in his combinations, screeching. When they came up to whip Mamie, they usually found her sleeping tranquilly. Not shamming, you know, but really sleeping, and looking like the sweetest little angel, which seems to me to make it almost worse. But, of course, it was daytime when they were in the gardens, and then Tony did most of the talking. You could gather from his talk that he was a very brave boy, and no one was so proud of it as Mamie. She would have loved to have a ticket on her saying that she was his sister, and at no time did she admire him more than when he told her, as he often did with splendid firmness, one day he meant to remain behind in the gardens, after the gates were closed. Oh, Tony, she would say with awful respect, but the fairies will be so angry. I dare say, replied Tony carelessly, perhaps, she said thrilling, Peter Pan will give you a sail in his boat. I shall make him, replied Tony. No wonder she was proud of him. But they should not have talked so loudly, for one day they were overheard by a fairy who had been gathering skeleton leaves, from which the little people weave their summer curtains, and after that Tony was a marked boy. They loosened the rails before he sat on them, so that down he came on the back of his head. They tripped him up by catching his bootlace and bribed the ducks to sink his boat. Nearly all the nasty accidents you meet with in the gardens occur because the fairies have taken an ill will to you, and so it behoves you to be careful what you say about them. Mamie was one of the kind who liked to fix a day for doing things, but Tony was not that kind, and when she asked him which day he was to remain behind in the gardens after lockout, he merely replied, just some day. He was quite vague about which day, except when she asked, "'Will it be today?' And then he could always say for certain that it would not be today. So she saw that he was waiting for a real good chance. This brings us to an afternoon when the gardens were white with snow and there was ice on the round pond. Not thick enough to skate on, but at least you could spoil it for tomorrow by flinging stones." and many bright little boys and girls were doing that. When Tony and his sister arrived, they wanted to go straight to the pond, but their Aya said they must take a sharp walk first, and as she said this she glanced at the time board to see when the gardens closed that night. It read half-past five, Poor Aya, she is the one who laughs continuously because there are so many white children in the world, but she was not to laugh much more that day. Well, they went up the baby walk and back, and when they returned to the time board, she was surprised to see that it now read five o'clock for closing time. But she was unacquainted with the tricky ways of the fairies, and so did not see, as Mamie and Tony saw at once, that they had changed the hour, because there was to be a ball tonight. She said there was only time now to walk to the top of the hump and back, and as they trotted along with her, she little guessed what was thrilling their little breasts. You see, the chance had come of seeing a fairy ball. Never, Tony felt, could he hope for a better chance. He had to feel this, for Mamie so plainly felt it for him. Her eager eyes asked the question, Is it today? And he gasped and then nodded. Mamie slipped her hand into Tony's, and hers was hot, but his was cold. She did a very kind thing. She took off her scarf and gave it to him. In case you should feel cold, she whispered. Her face was aglow, but Tony's was very gloomy. As they turned on the top of the hump, he whispered to her, I'm afraid nurse would see me, so I shan't be able to do it. Mamie admired him more than ever for being afraid of nothing but their ire. When there were so many unknown terrors to fear, and she said aloud, Tony, I shall race you to the gate. And in a whisper, then you can hide. And off they ran. Tony could always outdistance her easily, but never had she known him speed away so quickly as now, and she was sure he hurried that he might have more time to hide. Brave, brave, her doting eyes were crying, when she got a dreadful shock. Instead of hiding, her hero had run out at the gate. At this bitter sight, Mamie stopped blankly, as if all her lapful of darling treasures were suddenly spilled and then for very disdain she could not sob. In a swell of protest against all puling cowards, she ran to St. Gavor's well and hid in Tony's stead. When the ayah reached the gate and saw Tony far in front, she thought her other charge was with him and passed out. Twilight came on and scores and hundreds of people passed out, including the last one, who always has to run for it, but Mamie saw them not. She had shut her eyes tight and glued them with passionate tears. When she opened them, something very cold ran up her legs and up her arms and dropped into her heart. It was the stillness of the gardens. Then she heard clang, then from another part, clang, then clang, clang far away. It was the closing of the gates. Immediately, the last clang had died away. Mamie distinctly heard a voice say, So that's all right. It had a wooden sound and seemed to come from above, and she looked up in time to see an elm tree stretching out its arms and yawning. She was about to say, I never knew you could speak, when a metallic voice that seemed to come from the ladle at the well remarked to the elm, I suppose it is a bit coldish up there. And the elm replied, Not particularly, but you do get numb standing so long on one leg. And he flapped his arms vigorously, just as the cabmen do before they drive off. Mamie was quite surprised, to see that a number of other tall trees were doing the same sort of thing, and she stole away to the baby walk and crouched observantly under a minorca holly which shrugged its shoulders but did not seem to mind her she was not in the least cold she was wearing a russet-coloured pelisse and had the hood over her head so that nothing of her showed except her dear little face and her curls the rest of her real self was hidden far away inside so many warm garments that in shape she seemed rather like a ball She was about 40, round the waist. There was a good deal going on in the baby walk when Mamie arrived in time to see a magnolia, and a Persian lilac step over the railing and set off for a smart walk. They moved in a jerky sort of way, certainly, but that was because they used crutches. An elderberry hobbled across the walk and stood chatting with some young quinces, and they all had crutches. The crutches were the sticks that are tied to young trees and shrubs. They were quite familiar objects to Mamie, but she had never known what they were there for until tonight. She peeped up the walk and saw her first fairy. He was a street boy fairy who was running up the walk, closing the weeping trees. The way he did it was this. He pressed a spring in the trunk, and they shut like umbrellas, deluging the little plants beneath with snow oh you naughty naughty child mamie cried indignantly for she knew what it was to have a dripping umbrella about your ears fortunately the mischievous fellow was out of earshot but the chrysanthemums heard her and they all said so pointedly hoity-toity what is this that she had to come out and show herself then the whole vegetable kingdom was rather puzzled what to do of course it is no affair of ours a spindle tree said after they had whispered together but you know quite well you ought not to be here and perhaps our duty is to report you to the fairies what do you think yourself i think you should not mamie replied which so perplexed them that they said petulantly there was no arguing with her I wouldn't ask it of you, she assured them, if I thought it was wrong. And, of course, after this, they could not well carry tails. Then they said, Well a day, and such is life, for they can be frightfully sarcastic. But she felt sorry for those of them who had no crutches, and she said good-naturedly, Before I go to the fairy's ball, I should like to take you for a walk, one at a time. You can lean on me, you know. At this they clapped their hands and she escorted them up the baby walk and back again, one at a time, putting an arm or a finger round the very frail, setting their leg right when it got too ridiculous, and treating the foreign ones quite as courteously as the English, though she could not understand a word they said. They behaved well on the whole, though some whimpered that she had not taken them as far as she took Nancy or Grace or Dorothy and others jagged her, but it was quite unintentional, and she was too much of a lady to cry out. So much walking tired her, and she was anxious to be off to the ball, but she no longer felt afraid. The reason she felt no more fear was that it was now night-time, and in the dark, you remember, Mamie was always rather strange. They were now loath to let her go, for, if the fairies see you, they warned her, they will mischief you, stab you to death, or compel you to nurse their children, or turn you into something tedious like an evergreen oak. As they said this, they looked with affected pity at an evergreen oak, for in winter they are very envious of the evergreens. Oh, la, replied the oak bitingly, how deliciously cosy it is to stand here, button to the neck, and watch you poor naked creatures shivering this made them sulky though they had really brought it on themselves and they drew from mamie a very gloomy picture of the perils that faced her if she insisted on going to the ball she learned from a purple filbert that the court was not in its usual good temper at present the cause being the tantalizing heart of the duke of christmas daisies he was an oriental fairy very poorly of a dreadful complaint namely, inability to love, and though he had tried many ladies in many lands, he could not fall in love with one of them. Queen Mab, who rules in the gardens, had been confident that her girls would bewitch him, but alas, his heart, the doctor said, remained cold. This rather irritating doctor, who was his private physician, felt the duke's heart immediately after any lady was presented, and then always shook his bald head and murmured, Cold, quite cold. Naturally, Queen Mab felt disgraced, and first she tried the effect of ordering the court into tears for nine minutes, and then she blamed the cupids and decreed that they should wear fool's caps until they thawed the duke's frozen heart. "'How I should love to see the cupids in their dear little fool's caps!' Mamie cried. "'And away she ran, to look for them very recklessly, for the cupids hate to be laughed at. "'It is always easy to discover where a fairy's ball is being held, "'as ribbons are stretched between it and all the populous parts of the gardens, "'on which those invited may walk to the dance without wetting their pumps. "'This night the ribbons were red.' and looked very pretty on the snow mamie walked alongside one of them for some distance without meeting anybody but at last she saw a fairy cavalcade approaching to her surprise they seemed to be returning from the ball and she had just time to hide from them by bending her knees and holding out her arms and pretending to be a garden chair there were six horsemen in front and six behind In the middle walked a prim lady wearing a long train, held up by two pages, and on the train, as if it were a couch, reclined a lovely girl, for in this way do aristocratic fairies travel about. She was dressed in golden rain, but the most enviable part of her was her neck, which was blue in colour and of a velvet texture, and of course showed off her diamond necklace as no white-throat could have glorified it. The high-born fairies obtained this admired effect by pricking their skin, which lets the blue blood come through and dye them, and you cannot imagine anything so dazzling unless you have seen the ladies busts in the jewellers' windows. Mamie also noticed that the whole cavalcade seemed to be in a passion. Tilting their noses higher than it can be safe, for even fairies to tilt them, and she concluded that this must be another case in which the doctor had said, Cold, quite cold. Well, she followed the ribbon to a place where it became a bridge over a dry puddle, into which another fairy had fallen and been unable to climb out. At first this little damsel was afraid of Mamie, who most kindly went to her aid, But soon she sat in her hand chatting gaily, and explaining that her name was Brownie, and that though only a poor street singer, she was on her way to the ball to see if the Duke would have her. Of course, she said, I am rather plain, and this made Mamie uncomfortable, for indeed, the simple little creature was almost quite plain for a fairy. It was difficult to know what to reply. "'I see you think I have no chance,' Brownie said falteringly. "'I don't say that,' Mamie answered politely. "'Of course, your face is just a tiny bit homely, but...' "'Really, it was quite awkward for her.' "'Fortunately, she remembered about her father and the bazaar. "'He had gone to a fashionable bazaar, "'where all the most beautiful ladies in London "'were on view for half a crown the second day.' But on his return home, instead of being dissatisfied with Mamie's mother, he had said, You can't think, my dear, what a relief it is to see a homely face again. Mamie repeated this story, and it fortified Brownie tremendously. Indeed, she had no longer the slightest doubt that the Duke would choose her. So she scudded away up the ribbon, calling out to Mamie not to follow, lest the Queen should mischief her. But Mamie's curiosity tugged her forward, and presently at the seven Spanish chestnuts, she saw a wonderful light. She crept forward until she was quite near it, and then she peeped from behind a tree. The light, which was as high as your head above the ground, was composed of myriads of glowworms, all holding on to each other, and so forming a dazzling canopy over the fairy ring. There were thousands of little people looking on, but they were in shadow and drab in colour compared to the glorious creatures within that luminous circle who were so bewilderingly bright that Mamie had to wink hard all the time she looked at them. It was amazing and even irritating to her that the Duke of Christmas Daisies should be able to keep out of love for a moment yet out of love his dusky grace still was. You could see it by the shamed looks of the Queen and court, though they pretended not to care, by the way darling ladies brought forward for his approval, burst into tears as they were told to pass on, and by his own most dreary face. Mamie could also see the pompous doctor feeling the Duke's heart, and hear him give utterance to his parrot cry, And she was particularly sorry for the cupids, who stood in their fool's caps in obscure places, and every time they heard that cold, quite cold, bowed their disgraced little heads. She was disappointed not to see Peter Pan, and I may as well tell you now why he was so late that night. It was because his boat had got wedged on the serpentine between fields of floating ice, through which he had to break a perilous passage with his trusty paddle. The fairies had as yet scarcely missed him, for they could not dance so heavy were their hearts. They forget all the steps when they are sad, and remember them again when they are merry. David tells me that fairies never say, We feel happy. What they say is, We feel dancy. Well, They were looking very undancy indeed when sudden laughter broke out among the onlookers, caused by Brownie, who had just arrived and was insisting on her right to be presented to the Duke. Mamie craned forward eagerly to see how her friend fared, though she had really no hope. No one seemed to have the least hope except Brownie herself, who, however, was absolutely confident. She was led before his grace, and the doctor, putting a finger carelessly on the ducal heart, which, for convenience sake, was reached by a little trapdoor in his diamond shirt, had begun to say mechanically, cold, quite, when he stopped, abruptly. What's this? he cried, and first he shook the heart like a watch, and then put his ear to it, Bless my soul, cried the doctor, and by this time, of course, the excitement among the spectators was tremendous, fairies fainting right and left. Everybody stared breathlessly at the duke, who was very much startled and looked as if he would like to run away. Good gracious me, the doctor was heard muttering, and now the heart was evidently on fire for he had to jerk his fingers away from it and put them in his mouth. The suspense was awful. Then, in a loud voice and bowing low, My Lord Duke, said the physician elatedly, I have the honour to inform Your Excellency that Your Grace is in love. You can't conceive the effect of it. Brownie held out her arms to the duke, and he flung himself into them. The queen leapt into the arms of the Lord Chamberlain, and the ladies of the court leapt into the arms of her gentlemen, for it is quite etiquette to follow her example in everything. Thus, in a single moment, about fifty marriages took place, for if you leap into each other's arms, it is a fairy wedding. Of course, a clergyman has to be present. How the crowd cheered and leapt, trumpets brayed, the moon came out, and immediately a thousand couples seized hold of its rays, as if they were ribbons in a may-dance, and waltzed in wild abandon around the fairy ring. Most gladsome sight of all, the cupids plucked the hated fool's caps from their heads and cast them high in the air. And then Mamie went and spoiled everything. She couldn't help it. She was crazy with delight over her little friend's good fortune. So she took several steps forward and cried in an ecstasy, Oh, Brownie, how splendid! Everybody stood still. The music ceased, the lights went out, and all in the time you may take to say, Oh, dear. An awful sense of her peril came upon Mamie. Too late, she remembered that she was a lost child, in a place where no human must be between the locking and the opening of the gates. She heard the murmur of an angry multitude. She saw a thousand swords flashing for her blood, and she uttered a cry of terror and fled. How she ran, and all the time her eyes were starting out of her head. Many times she lay down and then quickly jumped up and ran on again. Her little mind was so entangled in terrors that she no longer knew she was in the gardens. The one thing she was sure of was that she must never cease to run, and she thought she was still running long after she had dropped in the figs and gone to sleep. She thought the snowflakes falling on her face were her mother kissing her goodnight. She thought her coverlet of snow was a warm blanket and tried to pull it over her head. And when she heard talking through her dreams, she thought it was her mother bringing father to the nursery door to look at her as she slept. But it was the fairies. I'm very glad to be able to say that they no longer desired to mischief her. When she rushed away, they had rent the air with such cries as Slay her! turn her into something extremely unpleasant, and so on. But the pursuit was delayed while they discussed who should march in front, and this gave Duchess Brownie time to cast herself before the Queen and demand a boon. Every bride has a right to a boon, and what she asked for was Mamie's life. Anything except that, replied Queen Mab sternly, and all the fairies chanted, anything except that. But when they learned how Mamie had befriended Brownie, and so enabled her to attend the ball to their great glory and renown, they gave three huzzas for the little human, and set off like an army to thank her, the court advancing in front, and the canopy keeping step with it. They traced Mamie easily by her footprints in the snow. But though they found her deep in snow in the figs, it seemed impossible to thank Mamie for they could not waken her. They went through the form of thanking her, that is to say, the new king stood on her body and read her a long address of welcome, but she heard not a word of it. They also cleared the snow off her, but soon she was covered again, and they saw she was in danger of perishing of cold. "'Turn her into something that does not mind the cold,' seemed a good suggestion of the doctor's, But the only thing they could think of that does not mind cold was a snowflake. And it might melt, the queen pointed out, so that idea had to be given up. A magnificent attempt was made to carry her to a sheltered spot, but though there were so many of them, she was too heavy. By this time all the ladies were crying in their handkerchiefs, but presently the cupids had a lovely idea. Build a house round her, they cried, and at once everybody perceived that this was the thing to do. In a moment, a hundred fairy sawyers were among the branches. Architects were running round Mamie measuring her. A bricklayer's yard sprang up at her feet. Seventy-five masons rushed up with the foundation stone, and the queen laid it. Overseers were appointed to keep the boys off, scaffoldings were run up, The whole place rang with hammers and chisels and turning lathes, and by this time the roof was on and the glaziers were putting in the windows. The house was exactly the size of Mamie, and perfectly lovely. One of her arms was extended, and this had bothered them for a second, but they built a veranda round it, leading to the front door. The windows were the size of a coloured picture book, and the door rather smaller. But it would be easy for her to get out by taking off the roof. The fairies, as is their custom, clapped their hands with delight over their cleverness, and they were all so madly in love with the little house that they could not bear to think they had finished it. So they gave it ever so many little extra touches, and even then they added more extra touches. For instance, two of them ran up a ladder and put on a chimney, now we fear it is quite finished, they sighed, but no, for another two ran up the ladder and tied some smoke to the chimney. That certainly finishes it, they cried reluctantly. Not at all, cried a glowworm. If she were to wake without seeing a nightlight, she might be frightened, so I shall be her nightlight. Wait one moment, said a china merchant, and I shall make you a saucer now alas it was absolutely finished oh dear no gracious me cried a brass manufacturer there's no handle on the door and he put one on an ironmonger added a scraper and an old lady ran up with a doormat carpenters arrived with a water butt and the painters insisted on painting it finished at last finished "'How can it be finished?' the plumber demanded scornfully, "'before hot and cold are put in.' And he put in hot and cold. Then an army of gardeners arrived with fairy carts, and spades and seeds and bulbs and forcing houses, and soon they had a flower garden to the right of the veranda, and a vegetable garden to the left, and roses and clematis on the walls of the house, and in less time than five minutes, All these dear things were in full bloom. Oh, how beautiful the little house was now! But it was at last finished, true as true, and they had to leave it and return to the dance. They all kissed their hands to it as they went away, and the last to go was Brownie. She stayed a moment behind the others to drop a pleasant dream down the chimney. All through the night, the exquisite little house stood there in the figs, taking care of Mamie, and she never knew. She slept until the dream was quite finished, and woke feeling deliciously cosy, just as morning was breaking from its egg. And then she almost fell asleep again, and then she called out, Tony! For she thought she was at home in the nursery. As Tony made no answer, she sat up, whereupon her head hit the roof, and it opened like the lid of a box. And to her bewilderment, she saw all around her the Kensington Gardens, lying deep in snow. As she was not in the nursery, she wondered whether this was really herself, so she pinched her cheeks, and then she knew it was herself, and this reminded her that she was in the middle of a great adventure. She remembered now everything that had happened to her, from the closing of the gates, up to her running away from the fairies. But however, she asked herself, had she got into this funny place? She stepped out by the roof, right over the garden, and then she saw the dear house in which she had passed the night. It so entranced her that she could think of nothing else. Oh, you darling oh you sweet oh you love she cried perhaps a human voice frightened the little house or maybe it now knew that its work was done for no sooner had mamie spoken than it began to grow smaller it shrank so slowly that she could scarce believe it was shrinking yet she soon knew that it could not contain her now it always remained as complete as ever but it became smaller and smaller, and the garden dwindled at the same time, and the snow crept closer, lapping house and gardener. Now the house was the size of a little dog's kennel, and now of a Noah's Ark, but still you could see the smoke and the door-handle, and the roses on the wall, every one complete. The glow-worm light was waning too, but it was still there. Darling, loveliest, don't go! Mamie cried, falling on her knees, for the little house was now the size of a reel of thread, but still quite complete. But as she stretched out her arms imploringly, the snow crept up on all sides until it met itself, and where the little house had been was now one unbroken expanse of snow. Mamie stamped her foot naughtily, and was putting her fingers to her eyes When she heard a kind voice say, Don't cry, pretty human, don't cry. And then she turned round and saw a beautiful little naked boy regarding her wistfully. She knew at once that he must be Peter Pan. End of chapter 17